Hey, aloha, everybody. This is Jeff Reinbold. This is the second season, second show of Coffee with Coach. It is awesome to have you on the lanai with me here on the Big Island and in Pahoa, which is where we live here in Hawaii. Uh, if you hear the ocean in the background, hey, we're 87 steps away. So anytime you want to come out and visit, you're more than welcome. But we have some unbelievable news today. It all started with Aaron Rodgers uh, agreeing to want to come back to the Packers. That saga is now closed, but maybe an even bigger story. And this is um, amazing how these things run like this. Uh, Russell Wilson has been traded from the Seahawks to the Denver Broncos. And I don't think there's anybody better to talk about this and to get a reaction about it than one of the big time Bronco fans that I know. Uh, Michael, come on out here and let's talk a little ball. Okay. Let, right. <laughs> How are you, Yorat? Try, try and contain yourself. Fine. How excited is Bronco Nation, and you in particular, because you're about as big a Bronco fan as I know, about this news of Russell Wilson coming to the Mile High City? Well, good evening to everyone watching for a start. And obviously, uh, any comments, get them in on Twitter or on the chat function on YouTube and Facebook here. I'm, I'm getting shouted out. Just sends me a lot of comments tonight. I I haven't really processed it. it happened like 55 minutes ago. It, it's just it's just insane. And like I mean, I I know it's early in the morning there, Jeff. I, I rang you and told you, and, and and your reaction was was maybe legendary. For example, this is your face, and I can really imagine what you said. Uh, yeah, Broncos get Russell Wilson in the fourth rounder. Seahawks get two first rounders, uh, two second rounders, a fifth rounder, Drew Locke, Shelby Harris, and Noah Fant. I, I I'm biased. I but I, I think that I think the Seahawks have been shafted there, but I don't really care. I mean, personally, I, I think it's 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 an incredible moment for, for the Broncos, obviously getting somebody of Wilson's stature, a Super Bowl champion, obviously destroyed the Broncos back in what 2014 in, in New York for, for that Super Bowl when that defense was so good and that, and that Seahawks offense was great to watch and I think there's so many you're talking about the quickness of this coming out from the whole Roger story now to this and there are so many things that we can maybe talk about over the next few weeks you know where does this leave Pete Carl it's just it's a stunning it's a stunning move I, I can't I can't believe it but I'm obviously delighted well I think I think there's a lot of things at play here and you know we talked about the quarterback carousel and how it was going to move and and it and it really has Aaron Rodgers was the first one uh to to get it moving but this one is to me indicative of what the NFL really really is and that's a copycat league and so now you look at what the Rams were able to do when they basically leveraged their franchise to go get uh, you know, a great quarterback in Matthew Stafford, and they won a Super Bowl. Well, right now, what's happening here, you're, you're looking at a Bronco franchise that has a very, very good defense, has a trio of young wide receivers that are outstanding, and uh, an improving offensive line. You know, I think they've got depth at running back and ability at running back. So why not the Broncos? Why not the Broncos being that team that does it again this year? Here's the thing, Neil. I mean, uh, Mike, think about this now. Is that division got the best quarterbacks in football in it? 
I mean, you look at that division, Carr, Herbert, Russell Wilson, Mahomes. I mean, that's amazing, the quarterbacks in that division alone. It's just – I just want the season to start next week now. Like, for, for, like taking away my fandom, like th that division is – is going to be unbelievable and all the players that you've mentioned there one thing i'm not sure if you've seen it yesterday jeff i don't know why there's a light in my background like this it's like i've just seen the light yeah. today it's a holy it's light if you got your quarterback that's what it is von, von miller has, has openly said as well yesterday that you know he's basically said come and get me so he's he's happy to go back as well so yeah like the the chips are falling and this i think this is the year even take away this whole russell wilson situation this is a year that Surely some team is going to challenge the Chiefs of the West. Chiefs had a free run at the West for the last few years. Um, you know, Justin Herbert had primed for a, an, an even more productive season in, in 2022. So I'm I'm intrigued to see how Russell Wilson fits into Denver because they've got a new head coach and a very young coaching staff. So um, what a day. And it's just, it's incredible because free agency doesn't really start till next week. So I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this is a great opportunity for the fans to get in. Barry Samo has gotten in, and he is he's pulling no punches, right? He says, he says, Aaron Rodgers, here he goes, Coach, Bears fans don't care. Rodgers is back. He's a drama queen. Uh, and he says, Russ, Russ is going to cook in Denver. And he said, Drew Locke will do okay in Seattle. Handing the ball off a little more will help him. I think that's really, really true. Um, you know, I've got more comments as well, Jeff, here from people online. So we got yeah, Nick throw them out there. Let's throw them uh, out there. Is a big, big 49ers fan from Swansea saying, couldn't be happier to see Russell leave the NFC West. He's kept the Seahawks competitive and um, almost on his own for a while now. Uh, and then we got the crib report um, who I think is in the UK. Rogers laughing all the way to the bank. Although I don't think it will buy the Packers the Super Bowl. Meanwhile, the Packers, sorry, meanwhile, the Broncos getting Russell Wilson is a huge get for them. Really bad for Seattle. Belly8417, who's in England, uh, says they've basically recouped the picks for Jamal Adams. So Wilson for Adams, it's going to haunt them for years. It's going to be intriguing to see what Seattle does, not just now, but in the draft. Before we talk about the draft, Jeff, you mentioned a bit there with the comments. Uh, happened, I think you would have been in bed at this time, 4.30, it comes out. Pat McAfee tweets it first. One minute later, Ian Rappaport, uh, Aaron Rodgers, Ian Rappaport saying that he's getting a 200 million four-year deal, 153 million dollars guaranteed. Pat McAfee then says those numbers aren't right. Rappaport saying it's the biggest deal in the NFL in 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 the history of the NFL in terms of in terms of financing. But for you, Jeff, um, regardless of, of the finances here, he's going to be in London playing for the Packers. But also, thank God for the Packers fans, you know, in in their sense that he stays in Green Bay because that would have been a huge loss for them. No question. And I think, you know, again, interesting that Pat McAfee breaks it because Pat McAfee and Rogers are very close friends. And that's got to really bother Rappaport and, you know, the in, quote insiders. Um, but I think it's interesting, you know, Aaron Rodgers is going to get his payday, which I think he frankly deserves. Now, let's look at how creative the Packers can be to put players around him. How are they going to use the salary cap? I think people have seen, and, and this is important, I think, for fans to understand this, the salary cap can be manipulated, right? And, and you see good organizations with a great capologist do that. And, you know, whether it's front-loading contracts, pushing money back, pushing money forward, there's a lot of ways that they can, they can uh, kind of manipulate the, the salary cap. So, uh, again, great day for Packer fans, great day for fans of, 
the game in Europe. They're going to see the, one of the greatest to ever spin it uh, in London. And a great day for Denver Bronco fans. For Seattle fans, it's got to be, you know, uh, a sad day, I think, because Russell has been the iconic leader of that franchise for so long. But it's a team that, frankly, needed to make this move. And, and I think that's – it's over been probably a year, maybe two years even, uh, that he's had to battle with not enough players around him. They need draft capital. They need to draft better. And, again, I think that that's, that's just the reality of this situation. So keep those comments coming. Keep your uh, takes, your rants, your questions. Fire them in here, and we will read them, but we will only read them if you tell us where you're tweeting us, hitting us, calling us, texting us, however you're getting it in. Get it to Michael, and we'll read it on the air. Talking about tweeting, Jeff, I'm loving that bird behind you. It's, uh, isn't that isn't that awesome, man? I'm just people listening to the podcast. I, go, I, sit on, I sit on my my lanai, which is a porch to everybody else in the world. That's what we call it here. And I'm looking around, and I can see the ocean right there, and this beautiful, beautiful jungle that we live in. It is. I tell you what, I am really, really a fortunate guy. So, um, you know, when uh, when anybody says. It's impossible. It ain't impossible. You got to make it possible. And, and yes, you know, that's that's the way we look at our life here. Hey, um, as we go forward, the combine uh, obviously has taken center stage with a lot of things. And we're going to talk about the combine, you know, next week in more detail about the, you know, the overall structure of the combine, what happens at the combine, who are the combine winners. I will tell you this right now, straight up. I am not a big combine guy. I think it's, nope. I think, no, I think it's overblown. I think it is actually can be, uh, it can be a situation where a guy goes and jumps out of the gym or runs really fast or whatever, and he can help himself, but really he can murky the waters in terms of making a pure football evaluation of the guy. And I'm going to take John Ross as my perfect example, right? Runs the fastest combine time ever. Never did squat as an NFL player. And you know, we'll, next week when we get into the mechanics of the combine, we'll we'll talk about why that is. But today we are going to talk running backs, and we're going to talk about if you are in the market for a running back. Our man Ali has looked at this class. I've looked at the class. Michael's looked at the class, and we're going to come and talk about who we feel if you need a running back. Who are the guys, first of all, that have a first-round grade? And they're, it's really tough to get a first-round grade anymore as a running back. But then the guys who are value guys, that whether it's second, third, maybe up to fifth, I think there's value at the position. Welcome, Ali. Great to have you back with the show again. How's it going, Jeff? I must admit, my background is not quite as glamorous as yours. I just realized I've got some laundry hanging up, no <laughs> trees, there's no uh, there's no birds singing in the background. There's a, the cat, oh, scratching, the cat scratching at the doorway. I don't know if you can hear the cat scratching, but you know we've got some background noise, not quite as, as beautiful as a background, unfortunately, as well, yours. I, I, perfect segue, right? Because in the in the draft world today, the running back position, we talk about undervalued, right? It's kind of become a background position for a lot of teams in the National Football League. 
and you look at what's going on with Saquon right now, where they're trying to trade him. They can't get out from underneath that big contract that he's got. They're probably going to have to pay to get him moved. Um, you know, I, I thought it was a great selection just based on ability. He's a, certainly a first rounder, but the position is so volatile because of the nature of it. You get an injury and you get a situation like we got today with him. Who are the guys that you like in this draft, Ollie? Yeah, you make a great point about running backs um, because they are, it's kind of a, a one contract shelf life. Like the average um, shelf life of an NFL running back is about three and a half years. Um, so when you're using a, a second overall pick like the Giants, and, and, and I'm, I'm with you, I, I like the pick at the time in terms of Saquon's ability. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal football player at his very best. But the second overall pick on a running back is really, really rich. And we're not going to see anything like that in this class. For me, there's no first-round running backs. Um, it's a shame that with the Russell Wilson situation, we're not talking about quarterbacks this week after after we dived into those guys last week. But similar to the, similar to the quarterback situation, there's not a first-round running back in this class. There's not a, a Najee Harris in this class for me. Or, you know, we saw Travis Etienne go first round last year, which was a little bit of a surprise. Najee was always a guy we thought would be a first rounder, but no first round guy. But there's a lot of guys that I love. It's a deep class. We mentioned this last week. Aside from the quarterback class, this is a deeply talented NFL draft class as a whole. And running backs are no different. Um, and the guy at the top, very top for me, is I think he's a little bit of a divisive um, prospect for a lot of people. Uh, but Isaiah Spiller out of Texas A&M for me is, um, I wouldn't say far and away the best running back prospect because like the quarterbacks, I think these guys are all very close at the top. But for me, Isaiah Spiller um, comes in off the back of consecutive 1,000-yard seasons for Texas A&M, averaged 5.5 yards per carry for his career. He's a guy that has the size to cut the mustard in the NFL, six foot tall, 217 pounds weighed in at the combine. Um, he puts that to good use in... Um, in a multiple ways, but particularly as a blocker, a lot of these running backs in the 2022 class up at the top, they're explosive running backs. I know as we finished last week, you said, oh, I want you to come to me with some explosive guys. We're going to get to the explosive guys, trust me. But Isaiah Spiller is a guy who um, does everything that you need an NFL running back to do. He's got the physicality to block. He hasn't been routinely tasked with catching the ball out of the backfield at Texas A&M, but when he has, he's showcased that he can do so. But for me, what makes Isaiah Spiller so different to the rest of the running backs in this class? Incredible footwork, fast feet, um, incredible vision. He can see the game at an incredible level, looking for holes to, to um, abuse. Um, and he's got incredible contact balance as well. You know, but he uses that frame really well to absorb contact, bounce off contact, and and in the NFL that's going to help him. I think more than some of the other running backs to be able to to rip off chunk plays. He's not a guy that's super fast, and this was one of the things you're going to you know we're going to talk about the combine next week. But he didn't run at the combine, and that was one of the questions that a lot of people wanted answering of Isaiah Spiller is what can he do in the forty yard dash because he doesn't display great long speed on tape. Um, but for me, the, the footwork, the vision, all-round capability as a running back in all facets of the game um, is is what makes him sort of a cut above the rest of the prospects. But very close, very close for, for, for certainly the top three guys. You think that he's a guy, Ollie, that can be a three-down back? He can be an every-down back? 
I believe so, yeah, because he has got that that physicality to stay in there and block. Like, like all these guys, he's a work in progress from uh, in that regard, you know, as a technician, as a as a pass protecting technician at the as a, as a blocker. He has still got some work to do there, but he's showcased that he's got the physicality to do so while he's been at Texas A and M. Again, not routinely used in the in the passing game for the Aggies, but I thought he showed some improvement this year in that regard. Um, looks like a natural catcher of the ball. Um, can absorb contact like we mentioned as a rusher, so he brings that to the table as a as a receiving back as well. And I think he can he can do the job in short yardage situations. Uses that vision, uses that footwork um, on the goal line to be able to to find the end zone. And, and after all, that's what you want your running back to do in the NFL, right? Well, let's talk about the next guy then, because he made it a habit of finding the end zone as a college player at Iowa State, Brees Hall. If I'm not mistaken, average 20 touchdowns a year as a college player. Over the past two years, yeah, 20 touchdowns. He hasn't had a regular season college football game without a touchdown since November 2019. Like, you you want a guy who's going to get you touchdowns? Brees Hall's that guy. And he's he's very different running back to Isaiah Spiller. You know, he's... Um, Fast, explosive, you know, combine. He ran a 4.39 40-yard dash, did extremely well in the explosion drills, the vertical and the broad jumps, a 40-inch vertical, 10-foot-6 broad jump. They're the, the drills that you look for for explosion. And, and that's what Brees Hall put on tape at Iowa State. He's an explosive running back, good change of direction, cuts with impressive agility, um, intelligent with good vision. Um, he's, a, he's an extremely impressive running back prospect who, for a lot of people, his performance at the Combine, and again, we I certainly don't put a lot of stock into the NFL Combine, but we know that people do. We know that NFL teams do. You know, they have real specific requisites off of testing numbers, and the, they'll rule guys out based on not hitting those numbers. So, Bruce Hall hit those numbers, hit them well, and he's a guy who I think for a lot of people is the, the, the RB1 of his class. I don't like his contact balance as much as Isaiah Spiller. I don't like um, his ability in protection as much as Isaiah Spiller, but as a truly explosive running back, I think Brees Hall, if that's what you're looking for, he's he's that guy in this class. They're about 37th and 38th overall prospects, so that's how close I rate these two, two guys. So this has a borderline first-round grade, but now let's talk about out of the backfield, which has become such a big part of what an NFL running back has got to do with the predominance of the passing game. You know, at Iowa State, you know, he kind of had a different role. Can you can you project that or did you see that in, you know, in the tape that you watched that he's a guy that can make plays out of the backfield with the ball in his hands as a pass receiver? Yeah, I think so. When you've when you've watched Brees Hall um as a pass catching running back, um he does have a, a natural ability to catch the ball. Um, which is one of the first things you want to look at. Has do, Is he natural? Because there are guys in this class who they've had the experience of being a pass catcher, but they don't look natural catching the ball. Um, the the one issue that I think with Brees Hall, um, as it pertains to being a, a pass catcher, is the same as a rusher. What does he do after contact? Because he, a lot of what he does successfully as a running back occurs before contact. He hasn't got that contact balance that a guy like Isaiah Spiller has. So if he if he gets if he gets hit early on after making that catch, is he going to be able to 
to leave a man in the dirt? Is he going to be able to absorb that contact and, and add extra yards afterwards? That's going to be the big question, I think, for Brees Hall's NFL draft stock, uh, is, is it, you know, with regards to being a pass catching running back? Yeah, I think with a guy like him, his workouts on his pro days are going to be really, really critical. You know, he's 40 going to be able- vertical, yeah. 40 yeah, inch vertical. You can you see that's one of the things that's scary about this whole process, right? Because that is a that's an eye-opening number. And a number of people, as Ali said, there are organizations that frankly draft off numbers or numbers are the predominant decision-making factor. I'm the other way. I'm a tape guy, but I'm also a workout guy because I think you can find out, you can unlock some of the, you know, like I told you about that. I told the story last week about when Emmanuel Sanders was worked out by, by uh, uh, I think it was San Diego. And I thought they were going to kill him. I mean, I thought they were going to, and they were, what they were doing was testing his mental toughness. And I think this is a kid that they're going to put him in some situations in his workouts that he's uncomfortable with or has not had a lot of experience with. And, you know, we'll see about how he, you know, he may end up being one of those guys, like you said, natural catcher. And then he goes out and, you know, they teach him a few routes and all of a sudden, who, you know, like you said, that it's not contact balance, it's before contact ability. And that's usually out of the backfield means your ability to run those option routes and some of those kinds of things. Yeah, it's going to be super interesting. And we, we mentioned about workouts and pro days last week about being in the perfect situation to be at your very best, you know, put your best foot forward at pro days versus the combine. And I thought Brees Hall looked pretty good on the field at the at the combine as well in a lot of those on-field drills. So, yeah, he's going to be interesting, certainly an interesting one to watch. All right, let's go to my guy. This is the guy that I really like. I mean, I really like. And when I watched him at Michigan, he came out of – we say he came out of nowhere. He actually transferred from Wake Forest. He had a bunch of transfers at Michigan State last year because of that portal situation in college football. But uh, Kenneth Walker, man, oh, man, what a year at Michigan State. Yeah, for sure. And he, the thing about Kenneth Walker at Wake Forest was he found the end zone with unerring regularity. I think 2020 season, I think he had 13 touchdowns to Wake Forest, but he never had the yardage. He was never a... Uh, an explosive big play threat for Wake Forest, just not part of what they do with their their offense. And if you can bear to watch that elongated mesh that they run at Wake Forest, it you know it really is a uh, just it's a labor of love watching that team. But he comes to Michigan State, like you say, almost out of nowhere. Um, incredible season, incredibly productive season, sixteen hundred yards, six point two yards of carry, eighteen touchdowns, really showcased. Just some incredible talent. I, I remember watching one game where he cut with, like, I think I described it as cutting better than a pair of scissors because that kid, like, no discernible drop off in his um, speed while cutting laterally is just incredible. You just don't see, like, you just don't see it. And then he went to the combine, ran a 4.38 quicker than Brees Hall. Um, so he's got that speed ability. He's also got a little bit of grinding ability to his game as well. He's got decent contact balance. He's got excellent vision. Um, he can create yardage himself, uh, you know, with with the various tricks of the trade, the, you know, with those cuts that we talk about. Um, I think for, for Kenneth Walker, the issue is similar to Brees Hall is he hasn't got um, an extensive experience of running different route trees. 
you know, Michigan State didn't ask him to do a lot of that. Wake Forest didn't ask him to do a lot of that. Um, so it's how, how do you project that to the to the NFL? And again, he's not a particularly physical back as a blocker. Um, so that's something he's going to have to really build into his game um, to be considered as a true three down back. But it's so exciting to watch. You know, he, he's the explosive guy that you were asking me to bring to the table last week. That's that is what Kenneth Walker is. I, I tell you what, I love him. Like, and well, I'm, you, you go look at the Michigan tape, and he's playing against a really good defensive line, right? I mean, Hutchinson's going to go in the first round of the draft. They may have two first rounders in that defensive line. I have three and, overall. Yeah, and you and you look at that and you say, Michigan State doesn't have. I mean. They got a lot better because of those transfers, but they are still under-talented. And he was getting the crap kicked out of him early in that game. And they kept pounding with him and kept pounding with him. And his in, his his competitiveness, and then all of a sudden, he breaks one. And you could see, like, I think he's got what the great backs have, and that's – the ability to put the team on his shoulder and carry a football team when it's not going good for the quarterback. And now I agree with you about the three down back thing. He's going to, he's got a lot of growing to do, but remember this is a kid that really has about two years of starting experience as a college football player. Kyle Brandt, uh, Oliver is going to love him for these angry runs. If he, if he gets a chance, this guy is uh, <laughs> he's definitely here. You've really went and took Jeff's explosiveness and, and took it to a new level. I did indeed. I, these these weren't really my actual rankings before last Monday until Jeff said, "Hey, I want some explosives." I was like, "Right, I'm going to get you know rid what? of all the guys. Get rid of all yeah, the guys see, that I love. Bring the explosives." No, guys. no, no. But see, this is great because this is what goes on, right? This is the this is the what happens between the scouting department and upper management and coaching, right? Where scouting may say, "Well, I like this guy better." And upper management or coaching may say we need explosiveness, right? So who's the who's the? And that's the great thing about what when we do this, and it's great having you on, Ollie, to to give us a different um, uh, set of eyes on these kids because there's a number of them that are really really good. And I think that four three nine, a sub four four back, is that's an eye opener. We talked about that forty inch vertical jump. Well. You go sub 4-4, that opens eyes because now you think about his ability to make the long speed, to make the big runs, the 80-yard runs that, you know, everybody craves. So who you got next? Next is a guy who actually is my favorite running back in this class. But Ooh. I don't necessarily mean that he's the best running back, but he's my favorite running back. Um, kid coming off his first 1,000-yard season, a kid whose journey to the NFL draft has been as impressive as his on-field play. Arizona State's Richard White is just wow. an incre incredible talent, incredible talent with an incredible backstory. Let's talk a little bit about the backstory first because I want to get this in there because this is a kid who was unranked by the major recruiting sites coming out of high school, suffered a serious injury in his high school career, went under the radar despite being productive, unranked, unrecruited, went to the University of Nebraska Kearney, um, spent a year there, didn't uh, didn't really fit with the scheme, didn't really fit with what they were doing at Nebraska Kearney. So he went all the way to uh, Mount San Antonio, a JUCO program, 
showed out there, balled out there, came out of San Antonio with multiple Power 5 offers, committed to UCLA, it didn't pan out, and he ended up at Arizona State. Made an impression in his first season, averaged 10 yards a carry in limited carries at Arizona State. 10? 10 yards per carry in his first season at Arizona State. Um, And then this season, 1,000 yards, 15 touchdowns, five and a half yards of carry. What's most exciting about Rashad White? I think he's the best pass-catching running back in this class. Kid who had over 450 receiving yards. He is as smooth as a knife butter. There's no way of putting it. Very little wasted motion in his running style. Um, Lateral agility off the charts. Excellent contact balance. Just a bag of tricks that you want out of running back position. Spins, jukes, cuts, hurdles, you name it. Rashad White has got it in his trick box. Um, this, Of course, there's some things that he needs to work on. I don't think he's the most explosive running back off, off, the, off the get-go. Doesn't explode straight out of the block, but really good long speed. I think he lacks the physicality. We, we're kind of beating a broken record here about the physicality for, for pass blocking. I think he doesn't... He doesn't have that at this present um, this present time. He you kind of watch him on tape and he gets quite easily upended as a blocker. But that's stuff that you get him in an NFL strength and conditioning uh, program, and he's gonna he's gonna take that element of his game to the next level. I think a team are gonna get a, an absolute bargain with Rashad White because I don't see much love for him outside of the early part of day three right now. Um, but for me, I think he's a top one hundred player in this NFL draft process. Wow. Hey, that is that, that's a good evaluation. Any any concerns when you look at Rashad White though about the injury history, or some of the some of the you know there are teams that will grade a guy down for making that many stops before he finally found a place where he could play, or they'll at least look into those. You know, you understand the recruited because of the injury in high school. Then you go to Kearney. Then you go to Mount Sac. Then you go to UCLA. Now you're at Arizona State. You know, it's one of the things they'll check on is they do their profile of this kid getting closer to the draft. Yeah, I've, I think we've seen it with, um, you know, we talked about Carson Strong last um, last week. You know, high school injuries are something that um, does come back to, to all the NFL draft prospects. I don't think that it was serious enough to cause concern um, from an NFL perspective. It's not a certainly not a recurring injury. Um, that, he's, that we've seen at any other stop. You know, with some guys, you see it come back and bite them through their college career. Like Carson Strong had to have that um, that surgery in the off season based on that high school knee injury. Rashad White hasn't had those issues in his college career, so I don't believe the the injury thing. And and yeah, there, there probably will be questions about his his non you know his stop start journey. Um, but I, I think he seems like the sort of kid who will be able to answer them with a plum. He seems like a great kid from from every exposure that I've seen in various interviews um, and and his appearances in front of the media and things like the combine and stuff like that. So I, I don't have a, a great deal of concern about those elements of his um, of his scouting report. I, I I think you got him right where he is. I think right what he is. I think you've evaluated him perfectly. I think he's a guy that'll go in the third round and make somebody really happy and make a lot of plays in the National Football League. And and uh, you know as long as you don't expose him to things that he's not ready to do right now. And that one of those is as you mentioned, pass blocking. I think we all ought to get on the phone and 
get a hold of Herman Edwards and say, Herman, what in the hell? You got a guy averaging 10 yards of carry. Give him the damn ball, man. What's up? Herman Edwards might not be there at Arizona State for much longer, though, to be fair. That's a tough Outstanding job uh, ranking your running backs. Now, where can the guy, where can fans go to, to get you and, you know, on Twitter or, you know, uh, and get more of Ali talking about the draft. Um, so if you go on Twitter, you can find me at OJ Hodgkinson. And then if you head over to www.profootballnetwork.com, all we've got there is scouting reports. We've got landing spots for the top NFL draft prospects. We've got an NFL draft guide, which drops, I believe, this Sunday, the 13th of March. Um, if you if you click on any article that's on the website, you can put your name and email address in there. You'll get um, a link to, to arrange the the NFL draft guide dropping in your inbox. And it's got a lot of fun, interactive content in there. You know, we, we've had the opportunity to speak to some of the, the top draft prospects, including Colorado State tight end Trey McBride. So there's going to be a lot of interactive content from those interviews. Um, some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that we've done in the creation of the NFL Draft Guide, looking into process for, as an NFL Draft analyst, looking behind the process of how we go into scouting prospects and things like that. So well worth your time checking that out. All right. That is Ali Hodgkinson, Pro Football Network. He is the official NFL college scout of coffee with the coach that's another title we've given him right now he's now gotten a he's, he's gotten a title but no raise because nobody <laughs> i'm gonna i'm, gonna, go straight, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna let's 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 talk tight ends next week great okay, segue yeah. let's, let's talk to big tight ends i think that's a that's a position we talk about the running back being a devalued position i think the tight end position in, in pro football now in the national football league is a value add position so let's talk tight ends next week. And guess what? We've got a really deep class of tight ends as well. Awesome. Love to hear it. Oliver, thanks so much for coming on. I need some playmakers, baby. But give me somebody to block a little bit, will you? Oh, we've got a hey, Trey McBride, Colorado State. Speak to you next week, guys. Uh, Oliver, thanks a million, man. All the best. See you soon. Appreciate it. And he's right in what he's saying because Oliver's been on chatting the boys um, like virtually and the work that they're doing is fantastic. So I'm sure Jeff will would pump the draft guy when it's released and uh, looking forward to it. Uh, we've got a different segment this week, something that we couldn't do last week. Uh, it's a little bit of where a little bit of where you're from, yeah? Yeah, a little bit about my place. This is my Hawaii. This is our segment uh, that we'll every week bring you so that you get a little feel for what it's like out here. And, you know, again, it's this is paradise, so get ready. Hey, Aloha, this is our favorite part of the show. This is where we get out in the country and we show you our Hawaii. This is Hawaii, a place called Richardson. Now, when you come here, what you see is all kind of snowboarders, all kind of young kids on their body boards. You see surfers out at a few turns of that break right there. People fishing. And then back here, amongst all this black rock and black sand beach, you find 100-year-old sea turtles. This, this place, place is full of local calls, energy, strong energy. We sit underneath, it wasn't just a cloud of day, we sit underneath Mauna Kea, right off in the distance. 
And Jeffrey, that looks very nice as well. Just yeah. a little taste, and we'll take you around the island every week this off season. Before we've got a special out. guest now, Jeff. Do you want to the, the college college focus? Yeah, we you know what we talked about this the other day, and we're constantly trying to upgrade the show and give you uh, give you a, a feel for football, not just at the National Football League level, but college football as well, and. One of the great stories in my mind in college football has been in the last six or eight years, the transformation of the program at West Point, which is the United States Military Academy. Now, this is a place that has a deep and storied history of football. In the 50s, they were amongst the national leaders, Coach Blake, uh, legendary coach and uh they had Vince Lombardi coast at, at West Point. Jim Young installed the wishbone at West Point back in the 80s and had a tremendous amount of success. And then it fell off. But our guest is John Luce. He's the assistant head coach at West Point at the United States Military Academy and has been one of the foundational pieces of that turnaround at Army. John, welcome to the show. Hey, Coach, thanks for having me. I wish I was there live, though, looking in the background, as opposed to my <laughs> attic. You're not in a bad place either, my man, because I know you're down on the Jersey Shore. You guys on I'm Spring on Break? Jersey Shore. This is, my, this is my attic in the background. I, I was hoping I could put a, a, a background in there, but I didn't know how to with the format. So you're going to have to see my attic. <laughs> hey, talk to us about um, when you guys got together under Coach Munkin. He put a staff together and you took over a program that had struggled. And I mean struggled. Navy had a stranglehold. For, for fans that don't understand, uh, Army is an independent and they play uh, for what's called the Commander-in-Chief's Trophy, which is the team between Air Force, West Point, the Military Academy, and Navy, the United States Naval Academy, play a round robin tournament every year and that is the most prestigious thing that as an academy you really fight for you guys had struggled john not only in the regular season but also in the commander-in-chief trophy battle but all of a sudden now you've turned it and how did it happen i think a lot of hard work and a lot of good coaches coach munkin did a great job you know i think pointing us in the right direction obviously uh i, I know this when when uh, when the when I was able to go back with Coach Monk, and I remember sitting there and thinking about it, and I just thought the way that recruiting's gone, the way the you know what the way the world's going, I just thought we had a chance at West Point to be really successful because now, now I didn't foresee the transfer portal, and I didn't foresee the image and likeness coming, which I think those things have helped us too. But but I think that um, I just thought with all the me 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 and and hey look at me and hey, blessed to have my 35th offer, that we had the chance to be the better team. And and that's, you know, with the, the culture had to change because we weren't very good in the first two years. But, you know, the culture changed. We worked hard at recruiting, get some really good players in there, obviously. And, uh, you know, we're able to really turn the corner and get back to where it was when Coach 
Jim Young was there. Well, you know, again, I, I'm trying to give, especially our UK uh, and European fans, because this 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 show gets, you know, fans from all over the world watch, and I I, I want them to kind of get a feel for the, how difficult it has to be to work at an academy program where these guys come not dreaming dreams of the national football league per se, but dreaming dreams of becoming officers, you know, in, in the United States military. So your highly, highly selective process gives you just a very small pool of players to recruit to. And yet you're going out and you're getting tasked to go on the road to Michigan and play Michigan, to play Oklahoma, who you took to overtime, to go into a bowl game last year and beat the Missouri Tigers. I, I think it's a phenomenal, phenomenal story. And what's it like coaching those kids who have such incredible demands upon them academically and outside of football? You know, I've always joked about this. I've always said that our worst kid would be captain somewhere else. And a couple of years ago, one of our worst kids got kicked out and became captain somewhere else. So <laughs> it truly happened. But we have the best kids in the world here. We really do. And I think the, I think people don't understand that we recruit them like everywhere else. I think the majority, and when I say majority, I swear nobody believes me, but I think every kid I've ever recruited here that became a really good football player, they never would have come if we didn't recruit them. You know, just you, you convinced them. Most of them come here, coach, because they want to play major college football. And their other offers are Ivy and CAA and Patriot and, you know, maybe some of the smaller, but not the power fives. And once in a while, we get a power five guy because he sees the value in what we're selling. But, but for the most part, they come here because they want to play big time football. And then I think after a while, you start to realize like, hey, this is the premier leadership school in the world. And I'm going to be set for life if I can stick out this whole thing. So it's, you know, you always tell them that the first couple of years will be hard, but it'll make the next 40 really easy. You know? yeah. really well, my, as you know, my brother graduated from that place yeah. and, and I, I look at him and, you know, he's I don't know what he is, probably 10 years younger than me. And, and he's already retired and living in Kauai. And, you know, nice. I'm, I'm still dragging around trying to coach punt protection. So that's right. <laughs> Hey, give the fans, John, if you would, uh, just kind of a glimpse into what a day for a cadet is like who's playing Division One college football. All right, so here you go. So I think a lot of people, I, I think I think the common cadet probably thinks that, hey, it's easier to be a football player because you get some breaks and some benefits, which we do. If we don't, we can't play. You know, we, we can't beat Missouri in a bowl game. We can't, you know, we you look at the teams that we've beaten even just this year. You know, we, we beat a couple of quarterbacks that are probably going to go in the first round. I mean, Western Kentucky and Liberty and some other people. I mean, some really good players now and good teams. So, but they, they get up about 6.20 in the morning. Um, I'll bet some of the freshmen have some duties before that. But for the most part, it's about 6.20. They get in formation for a couple of minutes before they go into the dining hall. They feed all 4,000 cadets one time, family style which is incredible to see. I mean, in 20 minutes, there's 4,400 cadets are being fed. Um, but they they will eat heavy tables. So our kids get two and a half portions of everybody else. Um, and they're, they'll eat every meal of their career if they, you know, if they do it with, uh, you know, if they choose to, they don't go out and buy something, which they do because they're getting paid. Um, then they'll go to class just like anywhere else. So I think the school part's not 
different than anywhere else. I mean, the formation obviously would be different. And then they'd have formation again before lunch. And they typically have one class after lunch. But again, it wouldn't be any different than where you went to Maine from an academic standpoint, right? I mean, you did Wait, 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 wait. A little except, different? Except I was taking poultry production and, you know, soil and water management. And these guys are taking heavy physics and, and uh, you know, all the Yeah, the academics are... You know, I, the, the academics are a little bit harder. I mean, I've joked lots of times that, I, that we got guys on our team that wouldn't get through Ithaca College. And and not that Ithaca was harder, but there's more support here. You know, we just we have ways to support them every way possible. And the biggest classroom here is 18 students. But they, you know, they're they're done after that first class. Typically, they'll there's a bus that runs them up to the top of the hill. Some guys will walk, but they'll come up and, you know, they'll do treatments and all those things. But we essentially go from 2.30 with our first team meeting and we'll have special teams meetings next, positioning meetings next, and then we'll hit the field. But the whole thing, you know, from the time we start the first meeting at 2.30 to the time we walk the, off the field, which it has to be before 6.30 and always is, Coach. And then they'll have food, but, you know, they'll have they'll eat right in the building like all these type of places now. And uh, I think the difference is, too, is, you know, when the day's done, you know, most, most kids, if you're not a major college football player in general – you know, you, you got time during the day to do things, which you got to utilize it here, but you ain't take a nap. You know I mean? Our kids don't have the time to take a nap. I mean, they, you got to do your work because by the time you get done with practice and dinner and meetings and all those things, you know, you're rolling down the hill, it's eight o'clock. So, you know, the demands are pretty, are pretty rigorous here, obviously, and should be, I mean, you know, these are the guys who are going to stand in the gap between the good and the bad. So, you know, they, get, they, it should be tough. I think I really do. And I'm, you know, I've been here off and on for going on 17 years, so I see what it can do for them. And, you know, it, it changes them now. I mean, it really does. It's it, You see how how much tougher they get as this thing rolls on and, and how they mature and how they, you know, they go from being a high school kid that's not different than any other high school kid, I don't think, and becomes, you know, a second lieutenant in the United States Army. It's pretty neat to watch that now. Yeah, I would think so. Hey, uh, you, you and your wife, Marianne, are, in my opinion, difference makers, right? What you do with your LFG foundation and um, can you can you tell the listeners and the viewers, John, about that, how it came to be and how, if they choose to, they can support what you guys are doing, which I think is absolutely, like I said, you guys are difference makers, rare, rare people. Well, thanks, Coach. And I appreciate all you've done for us, you know, doing this, obviously, getting us on here. And, and uh, you know, also, though, but, you know, you support us for the these last two years that we've turned into a clinic. But, you know what, Lauren was born with neurofibromatosis, which can cause a neurofibroma tumor anywhere there's a nerve. And and she's really been battling brain and spinal tumors her whole life. To, to It's a simple answer. It's not that simple, obviously. And my wife does a great job because I think a lot of people forget. I mean, she's raising a child with a brain tumor and it's a full time, full time job. You know, if you if you sat in a room with my wife and and, you know, when they have a round table of six or seven of the best doctors in the world at Children's Hospital, if you just rolled in there with a camera, you'd have a hard time figuring out who the parent is. You, know, you really would. So and, uh, you know, has educated herself and really you know, done a great job and is, I mean, you, I can't express what a job she's done with all this, obviously. So, and anyway, we went to some uh, ride for kids sponsored for the 
Pediatric Brain Tumor Foundation in the U.S. when, when Lauren was little, and she was really like the spokesmodel, right? And it was really neat. They had motorcycle riders that you know raised all this money, and they're on Wall Street doing all these things, right? And uh, but I'm I remember thinking all the you know went a couple of years to this. I remember thinking, God, I wish I could do something to give back, not just show up. And I was at the Michigan camp before there were one day football camps. Now they're everywhere, but I was at Michigan camp and you remember this, there were, these camps were a week long and there was 1500 kids out in the hot sun at university of Michigan. And it was Wednesday. And I remember looking around and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I remember thinking I could do this. I could do this in one day, you know? And uh, I ran it by my wife. It took a lot of selling to do it. It took a lot of selling to a lot of people. You know, I had to recruit them. But, uh, you know, that January, I went to the convention and uh, I, I rolled up on a guy, Mark Clayman, who was a college coach and a buddy of mine. I said, hey, what do you think about doing a one day camp? And he goes, I'm in. And then I told somebody else and he goes, I'm in. And then our rival, because I was a Lafayette as the coordinator at that point, Lehigh, I, I spoke at about a clinic. And one of the Lehigh coaches, John Powers, comes up to me. He's almost got tears in his eyes, you know, when I presented it to a Nike clinic. And uh, he said, hey, if you don't mind, I'd like to be involved. And I said, absolutely. This isn't about recruiting. And we had 56 coaches there, coach. I mean, Joe Tricario that you know and, you know, Rick Ulrich and guys that you worked with, right? Guys that I had worked with and knew. And I knew all 56 of them. And we had 325 kids the first day. And we raised about $20,000. And, uh, you know, each year I got bigger and I got bigger fast. And and we had Bobby Ross was our first speaker at the camp. We always yeah. had a coach speak, and he had just taken over at Army, and uh, where I was the first time, and he did a great job. And then, and then uh, John Harbaugh was one of our speakers when he was still with the Eagles, right? And we eventually got John and Jim were speakers over the years. I mean, the list of speakers is a who's who, right? And uh, but the thing that really changed it and really, really put it on a map was. Phil Sims spoke at our, our camp and it immediately exploded. And um, so Phil Sims was a speaker. And then each year we got a speaker. So we, in the end, coach, we were over 2000 campers and we had, we typically would have kids from 17 States. So we'd have kids from Texas and Georgia and Florida. We'd have kids from Canada every year. So obviously CFL and uh, you know, we have kids from, you know, some odd countries too. I mean, it was just, the, the list of campers, Coach, we had over 30,000 campers. I would be shocked. I don't know the answer, but I would be shocked if you don't have a CFL player that did not went, go to one first of all. Because I, 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 I'll, bet you the, I'll bet you there is one that's, that's playing that, that has been through your camp. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt because there's a ton of NFL guys. I mean, Rashawn Gary, Jabril Peppers. Um, Shake, uh, Saquon Barkley. I mean, people that you would know in the UK, right? I mean, ridiculous. Part. And uh, and then we had 47, over 4,700 college and some NFL guys volunteer at the camp because we used all college coaches to make it different. So anyway, all the money went to pediatric brain tumor research and cancer services. And, and then when COVID hit, we, you know, we wanted to still fund what we were doing because it goes to Dana Farber. Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and uh, John Hopkins are the big research. And then we do cancer services that help families get on, you know, back on their feet. Cause that, you know, I mean, obviously cancer hits everybody, right? So their family somehow. So we've helped out families that way too, but we had to find a way to keep the funding going. 
So uh, Coach Tube reached out to us with a great idea and Keith Kerbowski and, and uh, Wade Floyd and, you know, what, off and running the last two years. So it's really we've totally changed what we're doing. And, you know, for the people in the U.K., I mean, it, it you know, if you coach football or you're interested in football, the, the, this clinic is big time. And they'll, they'll take the clinic coach and they'll eventually they'll make courses. So they'll take your clinic and they'll make a course out of it. And even if you're not a football guy, I mean, you watched last year, Mac Brown and Jeff Munkin mm -hmm. and Luke Fickle. I mean, those people would get paid a lot of money to right to go talk to IBM or Absolutely. Apple, right? Absolutely. So they're in these clinics. And uh, but anyway, you can get the clinics. It all helps us. You know, people donate. I know people are listening to you because we've gotten some really oddball donations, too. And it it's uh, LFGF.org. But we've been receiving some donations that are kind of off the map a little bit. You know what I mean? So I know this word is getting out there and we're excited about it. Well, if they're if they're off the map, they're a little bit like us. But LFG.org yeah. is where you need yeah. to go. Uh, if you're a football guy, there's a lot of great football information in there. If you're a person who ha whose life has been touched by cancer in some way or you know, just somebody that wants to help, please go and become a part of the organization because we're all working together to make kids' lives better. And, and this pediatric cancer thing is, is something we got to get behind. So, again, John, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Outstanding insights of, at West Point Football. Who, who's who's in your non-conference schedule? That who? What biggins are you going to knock down next well, year? Everybody, I'm trying to think next year because we, we got a lot coming up now. We got we got Syracuse coming up. We got Wake Forest again, which man, Dave Claus and 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 especially their offense. You know, they just I, I don't know what they pay Warren Ruggiero, but it's not enough. You know, their offensive coordinator. I mean, it's just the RPOs and what they do is just amazing. So. Uh, you know, Wake Forest is a huge one. We got LSU coming up on the schedule. We got, you know, we ha we have Syracuse a couple times. We got Notre Dame coming up on the schedule. So we're, you know, because we can bounce around and because we're a draw, you know, it's it, it's really fun, I think, being an independent. And it's it's helped us, too. You know, you're talking about Jim Young on the in the beginning. Yep. I, I got to know Jim Young because I worked his camps. And uh I asked him if the story was true, and he said it was. He was coming back from Air Force Academy. They had gotten beat in the conventional his first year. And uh, they said he did. He pulled out a notepad, and he started writing down option plays and, uh, you know, grabbed one of the corners and made him the quarterback. And, and uh, I, I'm probably wrong here, but they they won their bowl game, like, right away. And I, I can't remember if it was a cherry bowl. But I think they beat Illinois. And holy Wait cow. a second. All right. Now you're going to – now you're getting at me, right? I'll give you one. 1980. God, it had to be 85. Eight, four or five. One of, I think it was four, right. maybe. We go to the Mirage Bowl at the as the University of Montana to play West Point, to play Army in Tokyo, Japan. 80,000 people in the Olympic Stadium, right down the middle. Orange pom-poms over here black pom-poms over here like it was the stadium was divided right in half right right nobody had any idea about what was going on but it was an awesome atmosphere we play them and that day and this is the only time i've ever heard this in history all four running backs the fullback the two halfbacks and the quarterback rushed for a hundred yards <laughs> against us oh. and marty morningwig who 
coincidentally would go on and be a head coach in the NFL and offensive oh, yeah. coordinator at a number of places in the NFL was our quarterback. And he threw for 500 yards and the game ended up like 48, 45. It was the, it was one of the great track meets I've ever been a part of. Wow. But I remember sitting with coach young in the hotel. Cause they kept both teams in the same hotel. And we went upstairs, uh, Jay Robertson was an assistant at Army at that time. And he, I had one of the smartest guys I've ever met. Yeah, ever. Well, I, know, I had known Jay from his time at Notre Dame, yep. right? And so he said, Come on up, have a drink tonight. And I want you, I want to introduce you, Coach Young. And I met Jim and I asked him about the wishbone and an option football. And he said, I believe in it because it makes you tough. And if you're tough, you've always got a chance. And I never have forgotten that. But I swear to God, John Luce, on my stack of Bibles, the first play they ran the loaded option, right, to, yeah. the, to, to the split end side. And I looked at our defense, and 10 of 11 defensive players were on the ground. And the only, <laughs> and the only one wasn't was the backside corner who the tight end couldn't get to. And everybody else was on the ground. Well, they keep changing the rules, so we're getting softer as a society. That When you asked me in the beginning about Army football, I thought, you know, as the world gets softer, we're the last of the hard. You know, we talk about it all the time. And, uh, you know, I, you worry about those rules, but we'll, we'll, we'll find a way. You know, I've said in that press box lots of times, Coach Rife, you look at somebody and you just go, we won't punt today. You know, you just watch the first series, some guys are getting flipped on their heads and just saying, we're not going to punt today. I mean, it's a, well, it's a fun way to roll well, listen, man, I hope you don't have to punt one time all season. Go 12-0 and and have a great year, and, and thank you again for being on the show. Hey, thank you, Coach. Always. Love you. Take care. All right. I love you, too. See you. John Luce from the United States Military Academy. Great little insight into college football. We'll have a college football segment every week, eh, Michael? Yes, sir. College football kickoff is in my neck of the woods, August the 27th, Northwestern, Nebraska, uh, thanks to John, not just for coming on, but for your flexibility, John. Thank you very much. Good to virtually meet you over text, and I'm sure we'll chat again. Excited for kickoff in Dublin in the next few months. Notre Dame over here next year as well. So an exciting time for college football in the UK, Ireland, Europe. Yeah, and, and I'm going to say this now, I, I, and I, you know I love pro football because that's, that's how I make my living. That's how I feed my family. That's how I pay for this house. But I'm going to tell you something. There is something really special about college football. And I would encourage anybody who has a chance to get a ticket and go see Nebraska, which is one of the preeminent programs, one of the most successful programs in the last 50 years in college football, numerous national championships. Go see the Big Red of Nebraska, the Cornhuskers, battle Northwestern University out of Chicago. And you talk about a school that is up against it. Northwestern is a small college with high academic standards, but Pat Fitzgerald, their head coach, who's an Irish guy by, by descent, is yes. one of the outstanding college football coaches and has turned that program around, a place where he went to school. And at one time, Northwestern had the longest losing streak in the history of college football. Fitz went in there as a player, they turned it around and he's continued it as the head coach. I was very lucky to get a tour of a tour of the facility a few months ago and yeah, top class organization. Looking forward to hopefully meeting Pat in a few months and talking a bit of uh, 
heritage as well. Before we get our final interview on, you've got a you've got another segment, Jeff. Another yes, segment. Yes, we do. This is from the meeting room, and this is we we're trying to give you a little bit of football every week when we come in. And you know, I know the off season's a long, long, long time before the games are on television again, but football never stops. Well, let's look at this offense. That's really a vertical first passing game. Now, this is beautiful play design. You're going to see Joe Hagan, extra offensive lineman in the game. All right, so now what Washington does is they counter, and you, you see the box. We talk about the box. You can see there are all those players in the box. We got nine, eight guys in the box. Nine, there's one free safety up there. And so what does Brady know? He knows he's got one-on-one. -on -one, and watch this route that we call divide. They're going to bring Godwin in this little short motion to create a stack. Now, Evans is going to run vertically down the field, and then Godwin is going to run across the safety's face. And so now you've divided the safety vertically, and as I run this, they come off play action, he's protected, and there's what you get right there. Perfect divide. You'll see the safety is stuck between those two vertical routes. He knows Godwin has leverage advantage, and that's where he puts the football. Now, let's look at Evans. What does Evans bring you? Empty formation, no back in the backfield. So he now has another of his weapons going deep. He's going to take Evans inside on what we call an inside fade. You're going to get a stop out here. The tight end there is a check down and all verticals here. So Tom now will read the safety and go where he has the best matchup. And Evans has the size, the length to go up and get the ball away from DB. So, again, he puts it where only his guy's going to get him the chance to make a play, and they get another big one. Now, his old buddy Gronk from his, from his New England days. Here you're going to see it here. Brate and Gronk stacked in, a, in this formation. Brate's going to come out and run an out route, and Gronk is going to go up and go vertical. And, again, he's going to put it where only his guy can get it. Let your guy use his length and his strength and go get that ball. A guy that's going to have to be big today is going to be this guy right here, Scotty Miller. Don't sleep on Scotty Miller because he's got sneaky speed. Again, they build a running formation to create single high matchups up, up field. And now Scotty Miller is going to come off. And again, he's going to run right past the corner on this little vertical route. Again, trying to stretch the field and divide the high safety. Great job by Brady, who was a guy that we thought maybe had lost his long arm the last two years in New England. But I tell you what, he's found it in Tampa Bay. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. There you go, Jeff. I, I love it. I love teaching the game, man. It's the thing that we're going to continue to do. And, and again, those thank you for Sky, to Sky Sports for allowing us to use those clips. Um, and again, we now have a very, very special guy coming to talk to you. And it's we have a few comments just very quickly, Jeff. If you don't mind, yeah. and I, I, I know we're probably going to end the show after this. Uh, Frederick Flunk is saying you need to do a segment shout out for local roadside eateries. Um, we've got a few oh, comments. Oh, I first one, <laughs> I got you. Paul Knight in the England said, slow news there, coach. Seattle won the trade for me. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting to see what people are saying here in terms of other comments as well. Um, 
At me, Bravery can't believe Wilson's going to the Broncos. Chelsea at Clive Park in England saying, I think it was obvious from the beginning. He just likes to play games and the media fall for it every time. That's Aaron Rodgers. Uh, yeah. it's, it's kept the offseason interesting. In terms of some other comments, uh, Betty Swallocks, who is in, is in Dublin, uh, while coach is like sitting in a bar with all these beautiful ladies walking by, knowing I won't be with any of them. Hashtag keep pounding, big Panthers fan. <laughs> uh, and uh, Dave, just finally, Dave from Walsall. Jeff's obviously delighted with Roger staying on. What does it mean for um, you know Jordan for Jordan Love? You know, does does this mean the Packers have all been given up on Jordan Love? No, I don't think so. I just think that they realize that their opportunity to get to the Super Bowl is is really dependent on on, on Aaron Rodgers, and he's he gives them their best opportunity. Aaron, uh, you know, Jordan Love's got work to do. Jordan Love, uh, Trey Lance, those guys got work to do. It's a big big jump when you talk about going from college football to the National Football League at that position, particularly. Oh, I was a mute there. It's been a long day. Uh, one final guest, and it's a really intriguing guest, Jeff, because he doesn't just talk about the growth of the game. Pre Aaron Rodgers news, pre Wilson news, this was recorded, but uh, talks about you know international series and a lot of things around that, which I think a lot of people are going to find very interesting. Do you want? Yeah, we're all we're all this week show. We're all fans of the National Football League. We're all this is an international podcast. I'm sitting here in Hawaii. You're sitting in you know in Ireland. We've got viewers for all the way from Russia to Australia. And, you know, it's it's amazing how this game has grown. This is Henry Hodgson. Henry is the vice president of uh, international game development and fan development internationally. And he was good enough after flying all night from London to, to Los Angeles, coming home after working in London for a week to give us some time yesterday to talk about the NFL, its international goals, its the, the the international series games and what the what the long game is for the national football league yes sir jeff just before we go because this is the last interview thank you for a great show again this week thanks to oliver thanks to john and, and i'll see you next week as well pre patties day now we're not doing this on patties, day. patties day baby we are going to have a great show and yes. uh i don't know how much good you're going to be to us because uh, you get into that dark stuff i think we may have no. to. i may I, I may have to call for a replacement but <laughs> Fans, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us every week. And and again, to John Luce and everybody, Ali and everybody that was a guest on the show, really appreciate you. Aloha. Absolutely. And folks, thanks. We'll be up in a few hours. Uh, mahalo, aloha. And here is Henry. Fans, it's a really special day today on Coffee with the Coach because we get to bring a friend of ours from a long time ago. I watched this guy grow up in an intern in the London office now. Vice President of International Marketing and Fan Development internationally, Henry Hodgson. Welcome to Coffee with Coach. Thank you, Coach. I, I didn't bring a coffee, but I got a water. I know it's a little earlier in the day for you than it is for me, but I probably need a coffee because I just flew back yesterday from the UK. Uh, I'm, I'm based in LA, so I'm definitely feeling the, the time zone. So another coffee wouldn't hurt. You know, Mike and I were talking about that before we brought you on. That, I think that's, I mean, you talk about a warrior. That's a warrior because I've done that <laughs> a couple of days out of you. So it was good to get home and see family. Yeah, it was nice. I got, I was, I mean, I was there for work um, and had a really good week um, of work, but I did manage to catch up with some friends and family over the weekend and, and flew back yesterday. So it was, it was good. You know, to you and everybody involved in the National Football League and putting on what was, a, I mean, a crazy, 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 tremendously good 
2021 season with incredible close games and worst to first stories. And, you know, I mean, he couldn't ask for more storylines and a better season. But to me, the cherry on top of all of it was the announcement that we had at the Super Bowl that the game was going to be expanding globally. Regular season games now in Germany and yep. Mexico in addition to three games in the UK. Yeah, I mean, it, it was huge. I think that, you know, that that was, I, you're right, it was the cherry on top of a great season, but it was the cherry on top of a great international season as well. You know, we obviously had the return of the London games, which I think was so important for, for fans back in the UK to, to get to, to touch and be around the NFL again after a year away from that. We had some awesome, and I know you're across this and, and you have been all the time, but some awesome international player stories over the last year and seeing some of these guys really thriving and, and playing, um, playing really well. Obviously, you know, from in terms of like coverage of the NFL, I don't think, you know, across the world, I don't think it's ever been better to be an NFL fan. Um, internationally, you, you're obviously a huge part of what we're doing with Sky in the UK, but, you know, a lot of markets, we've really stepped up kind of who's covering and how they're covering the NFL and it's easier and better than ever to, to be a fan. And then you're right, then the kind of, you're right, the cherry on top was was this announcement of, uh, of the games for this season in, in uh, Germany, Mexico and London as well. So a lot of excitement. I mean, we're as fans and, you know, I'm a fan first and foremost, and analyst second and coach third. But, uh, you know, the, the thing that we as fans, as consumers of the National Football League, Obviously, we're excited about that. We understand what a momentous thing it is. But what I don't think the fans appreciate, and I, I'd like you to kind of enlighten us a little bit about the process, how long and how involved and how difficult it is to go through all of the machinations, if you will, to, yeah. to on more games. Yeah, I mean, look, I think specific to Germany, um, which is obviously the newest thing. You know, we've been playing in Mexico before, and it was really more of a hiatus based on COVID um, and some other factors that have played into that. But just hitting Germany first, the the process is, you know, if you like, it goes back to you and I first meeting each other, and and NFL Europe being around, and and you know the fact that the sport had a foothold there. Um, one thing that I think happened, obviously, you know, 2007, I think NFL Europe went away uh, and that was the end of what was a, a, an awesome experiment of kind of having the game um, in Germany and in Europe generally. I think one of the reasons it went away was while that league was fantastic and it was gave a bunch of players, coaches, people like myself, amazing opportunities to learn and to, to grow in the sport. Um, for, for fans, I think maybe even more towards the end, and I think you and I talked about this and lived it, the quality of players that was being sent to Europe wasn't as high as it had been when that was first around. Um, and I think, you know, my personal opinion and, and I guess something that I've got to live since then is that we, if, we are, if you're exporting the NFL, you need to be exporting the NFL, not NFL Europe or, or something that's a lesser version of, of the product, which it was to some extent or other. So we pivoted then obviously to playing games in London and that was the start of that process. And then, you know, I went away, I guess, from international a bit and came and worked in the LA office on the NFL media side. When I came back to NFL International in 2000, whatever it was, 15, 16, 
people were like, hey, you know what? There's a, I think there's a bit of a fan base in Germany and I think we can do something there. It's like, yeah, no, no, a bit, huh? <laughs> no, no bleep. There's a, yeah, there, I'm, I'm aware of that. And so I think what we started to do was kind of take a more modern approach to how you aggregate that fan base, grow that fan base and really kind of try to develop it to a place where you could get it to the same level as, as let's say the UK and start playing games. So in terms of, a, of kind of that process, it really restarted. And again, I'm not going to make the claim that it started in 2016 because so much had been done by the likes of yourself and others prior to that time. But it really restarted, I think, in around 2015, 16, where we found the right TV partner. We've got a, you know, a couple of really fantastic TV partners uh, in Germany in ProSieben and DAZN who themselves are kind of growing. And so it made sense for them to come on this journey with us. Um, and and then you know aggregating the community on social which didn't exist before so having localized social media content um for germany um really building out our consumer products business so that fans can buy the gear and do all that stuff which it was harder and harder to do before that and so all of those things you know as you got the momentum and suddenly audiences were growing and the fan base was growing that you know there was a kind of a, a, a surge that really led very naturally to where we are now, where it's like, or where we were probably a year ago, where it's like, clearly Germany can not only support a, a game or games, but, um, you know, it'll be incredibly well received and it's almost like inevitable that it has to happen. So once we had got there, which I think probably was almost exactly a year ago, then a process was launched to say, okay, well, if we were going to have a game, where would we play a game? Um, and so we, you know, not dissimilar to, you know, Super Bowl or draft where cities get to bid on hosting an event or the Olympics or, you know, any, anything else. We launched a, a host city um, bid process, um, which went through most of, of last season um, and narrowed it down from a pretty broad field. Obviously, a lot of cities were interested in, in hosting uh, an NFL game and inevitably some of them were, were places where you and I spent some time way back. Uh, with NFL Europe. And then that was narrowed down um, to three finalists, which were um, Frankfurt, Munich, and Dusseldorf. Uh, and then, as you heard, during Super Bowl week, eventually narrowed down to, to the what wound up being um, two kind of winning bids um, with Munich and Frankfurt getting to host two games each over the next four years. Not determined yet whether those will be you know, back to back. So Munich, Frankfurt, Munich, Frankfurt, or, you know, to Munich, to Frankfurt, et cetera. We're still kind of figuring that piece out. Um, but, you know, super exciting for us to, to know that those are the cities. But also when you see the amount of interest there was from other cities, know that you can continue to grow football in, in those places. So Dusseldorf, for example, is despite not um, being part of the, the winning bid, want to help work with us and focus on, how we can um, increase the, the sort of participation of football and, and do things in that market, which is great. You know, well, from our time in the league, in NFL Europe, and, you know, we watched it go from Dusseldorf and Frankfurt to all of a sudden Berlin came in and then Hamburg was in. This, Germany as a country has several world-class cities. But for, sure. for all of us that were on the ground in NFL Europe, and particularly those of us who were headquartered in Germany, the one kind of, you know, that spot out there that you said, man, that's the place. That's where you got to get a footprint. That's where you want was Munich because it's yep. a, the media capital. 
it is a beautiful city and it has an unbelievably beautiful stadium. So I, I think getting to put your foot on the ground in Munich is huge in terms of the development of the game. It, it really is. I'm, I never, you know, I wasn't obviously at the time I was, I was just a, a, a lowly intern, but I never really understood why there wasn't a team um, in Munich and, and maybe they probably should have done or if, if NFL Europe had held on and, and more focus had been put on it, I'm sure that would have been inevitable. Um, I've definitely spent a lot of time in Munich over the last few years. You're right, it's where a lot of the media partners are headquartered and it's, it's a fantastic city. I just wasn't aware of it before. I love Germany. I think one of the interesting things that, you know, people who are, who are watching or listening to this from, let's say, the UK, Germany is very much like a decentralized country, whereas in the UK, like it or not, you know, a lot of things happen in London. In Germany, you know, yes, there's a capital city, but there, you know, everything happens everywhere, which is why actually playing, you know, as we went through that kind of bid process, playing a game in, in two different locations made sense. We've also had and developed a, like a really strong partnership with Bayern Munich, um, who are obviously, you know, the, the biggest player in literally in town in Munich, but in, in, the, in the country as well. I'm one of the biggest in the world. Um, and so being able to work with those guys and, and use their stadium for this, they, they are incredibly excited about the opportunity too, which is great. You know, now let's switch, switch gears a little bit. And I saw an interview. It was um, Brennan Kay did an interview with Aaron Rodgers. And it was, out, it was, I don't know if you remember the interview, but he actually went right to the right to the source and said hey listen why don't the packers come and play in london mm -hmm. and answer was hey we're sold out for the next 30 years we're not going to give up a home game to come to come to london and i think the entire packer nation around the world was kind of like just reserved to the fact that hey listen we're never going to see our heroes unless we go to lambeau field what a huge deal to get the most I can and I and you know the Cowboys will argue it and you know the Giants will argue but to me there's no more iconic franchise than the Green Bay Packers and to have those gold helmets and those green jerseys coming out of the tunnel at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium is I mean that's gonna I hope I can be there because I'm gonna tell you something, I might cry. I just might <laughs> open full open weeping. Yeah, it's it's really cool. I'm I couldn't be more excited about that one. I mean, um, obviously it was the 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 white whale for for um for the UK, given that they hadn't managed to to get that 32nd team in the stadium yet. So that's that's really exciting. Um it was made possible by the fact that you know, some combination of the extension of the league into 18 week seasons and then us creating this new commitment where every team had to play an international game once every eight years meant that it was inevitable at some point. I think what was exciting for us is that, that the Packers recognized that that was going to be the case and said, okay, well, let's, let's do it as soon as we possibly can because we know how long it's been and the appetite's only going to keep growing. Okay, now, um... Packers are coming. Obviously, you got the Bucks in Germany. Obviously, again, the Jacksonville Jaguars up. I've got to always have for a long time. I've had a footprint in in London. Mm -hmm. There's a questions out amongst the viewers, the fans, the listeners of this podcast. How do you put together the teams? Because people are trying right now 
to play that game. That's speculation. Yep. And I told him that is that the reason, the way you do it is that you sit in your office, take two darts, throw them on the wall, <laughs> and the NFL media guide, and whoever, then you put them together. Is that true? That is not quite how it happens. I think uh, I think there's a little bit. Okay, more. then enlighten us on the. Tell tell us how it happened. Yeah. So I mean, first of all, I think it's evolved, right? So you it, it, it well, I'll tell. I can talk quickly about what used to happen and then how it will happen, but. Um, as I say, there's now a commitment that every team has to do it over the course of eight years. So to some extent or other, um, it takes the pressure off kind of every year where people had to go out and, and really kind of cajole and persuade people into that. Um, a couple of the ways that, that that process had been made easier in the past was if you won a Super Bowl bid. So if your city was going to host a Super Bowl, you had to make a commitment as part of that to to play internationally. So some of the cities that you've seen you know, over the last few years, that was as a direct result of them winning Super Bowl bids. And then also there was a period, obviously, a lot of NFL fans will be aware of where there were a bunch of teams that were either moving stadium, building new stadiums, or, or even moving cities and, and building new stadiums. So as a result of that, the teams like the, the Raiders, the Rams, the Chargers, um, all played international games, you know, a fair amount as well during that time period. So that used to be the way the process worked. A couple of things. First of all, as I say, as I've said now too many times, every team has to do it. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's a really a matter of like putting your hand up and saying, okay, now's the moment for us. The other thing is, and I think some fans will have heard about this, but I think a really, really big part of how the NFL is going to continue growing internationally over the next few years is that teams can now start marketing themselves internationally. Um, and so teams managed to, over the course of the last season, put together kind of bids for how they would want to promote themselves in various different countries. And um, through that process, inevitably, there's going to be a link where a team, you know, like um, the Bucks, for example, are going to say, we, we've made a commitment to Germany, to growing our fan base in Germany. And, and so we would, you know, make sense that we, if we're going to have to play a game somewhere at some point, then why wouldn't we go play in Germany? Um, so that that really there is kind of, I think, going to play a big part in the future when we when you look at the teams that are more likely to play in those markets, it's going to be the teams that have made a long term marketing commitment there to say that are going to be the ones that put their hands up and say, well, you know, we want to actively be playing here. And we've certainly heard that as home teams this year, but also gonna, as a way to, ask, they want yeah, to be the whether it's team even more often. Yeah, that, that was my question, whether that was both as a home and a visiting team, they said they put that Yeah, I mean, home team, obviously, they're going to have some control over and, and be able to say, we would like to do that. And there are certainly clubs even outside of this year that have that are you know interested in in doing that in in the not too distant future as well in the markets that they've they've bid on. The away team piece is harder to control because um, it depends. Are you on the are you on their schedule? Um, are you on the on the team that's that's um, that's going to be playing there? Are you on their schedule? And and that that you know so in some cases maybe they'll get lucky, and in some cases then that team will be able to bring them along. So the other piece for the um, for the uh, opponent is that the team gets to protect one game to say this is one we definitely don't want to take away from our home fan base. And then they also get to make a decision about whether or not they would want to bring one of their division opponents or you know any division opponent along with them. So you know the questions that are actively 
being worked on at the moment with the teams that were announced last week is will you play one of your division opponents internationally yes or no and if not then obviously those are those are some games that wouldn't be able to come and then who is the team that you definitely don't want to play internationally because you want to make sure that your fan base gets to see that game in your market you don't want to lose your home field advantage exactly that's that's really or alternatively i mean i think the other part of that is you know i guess one of the questions is like if you really want to drag them around the world, like maybe that is home field advantage is making them get on a plane and go to wherever. That, that, that's a different way of looking at it. I didn't, I hadn't yeah. thought about it that way. Hey, um, before I let you go, what's the long game? Where are we going? What is the, I know you guys, obviously you strategize years and years and years in advance. What can you tell us about what the direction internationally that you guys are planning on taking? Yeah, I mean, there. I guess there are two aspects to it. But we we look at, and this is you know um, definitely uh, the way that I think we've started to look at things across international, led by Chris Halpin, who who had been leading the international team and, and recently left. Uh, Damani Leach, who's my boss, who's who's fantastic and and really you know brings a lot of kind of strong strategic thinking to, to everything we're doing internationally. You kind of split it up by the game, kind of how do you grow the game, the sport itself internationally? Fans, how do you grow the fan base internationally and what can you do to, to expand that, that? And then the engagement around the sport, like our reach on the media front, like how do we, how do we reach more fans and get them more engaged around the sport? Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of what we're looking at for, on the game side is how do you get more people playing the sport, um, you know, at a grassroots level, and that's probably flag football or some extension of that, um, looking to see how we can make flag football more relevant and potentially do that through um, seeing if it can become a, an Olympic sport, which is a, a really exciting challenge really? and opportunity. But I think if you do that, then, you know, every country that has um aspirations around the olympics is going to say this is something we we should invest in so that's that's potentially an opportunity down the line and then on the game side it's then how do you increase the number of players that are coming through um like the nfl academy does to play college football in the us to potentially have the opportunity to to play in the nfl and then at the highest level how do you identify those elite athletes that can be part of our international player pathway program and again expand the number of international players in the nfl because we know although this is about growing the game we know that the number of international players in the league is only going to you know excite fans in those countries that they're from but hey wow this guy is is one of ours and you see that now with the FA Obadas, the Jordan Mylatis, the Jakob Johnsons, like these guys who've come through and fans there are like, they might not be the biggest star, but at least I can relate more to the fact that they grew up, you know, in the same place as me, doing the same things as me, and that these guys, you know, all of these players are amazing athletes, first and foremost, but great people, and they want to give back to the countries that they're from. So it's been this great opportunity to, to work with those guys. You know, talking to Bjorn Werner and, and Sebastian Vollmer, really evident that that's the case. Yeah. These guys really are passionate about giving back to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sebastian has been the best ambassador you could imagine um, for Germany. And it's funny talking to him about, you know, when he was playing for the Patriots, he wasn't necessarily into the media. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but that, that's, that seems to be from the top in, in, uh, in New England. Yeah, something about that. Something about that <laughs> New England area there. 
exactly. Um, but now, you know, he really uh, has has embraced every opportunity to to be um, someone who's, who's kind of becoming and and it and should be the face of the NFL in Germany. So that that's great. You see, I think, I, I, I think Sebastian's school of German was the tipping point when he. When <laughs> That was that was a lot of fun to work on. I can tell you that was a lot of fun, uh, you know. And that was uh, that was you know our early forays into making it as relevant. You know, a identifying an international player that could be a face of things. B do something in local language that our fans in in German could could uh, engage with. But that that was you know one of the one brilliant. of the first, it was cool. It, it was, was brilliant. A lot of fun to work on. Hey, um, um, so yeah, game fans and engagement. But I think you know, if you say where are we going to, I think it's bringing the sport to everywhere around the world. I think it's doing more and more countries. The likes of you know Brazil, there's a huge amount of fans there that we're really discovering, and and you know how can we do more in that market to to grow that fan base and and kind of give them more opportunities. Australia, France, Spain. I think we we've sort of looked at. We've got these core markets where we're doing what we're doing now, the playing games. Canada obviously is a huge market for us. Um, but then what who are the next who are the next ones up? And then how do you begin to put the the blueprint in place to to grow the sport and grow the profile of the sport there? And then what are the opportunities? You know, there are some markets where probably the likelihood is putting a game in in some of those places is going to be very difficult to do, just from a kind of time zone or whatever else perspective. But is there something you can do that's like that that can that can really kind of have the fan base rally around it and and be a, a big moment for you? Well, I, I've said this since I don't know thirty years. We've talked about this process, and it's tied together. That game development is really fan development. Mm -hmm. fan development yeah, of course, is really game Absolutely. development. Yeah, it's a symbiotic relationship that they have. Henry, thank you so much to for back. Battling, battling jet lag to come Hopefully on. Hopefully, I made some sense. And, and and again, thank you again for for all of us who've been passionate about this project since day one. For you and and the vision that the National Football League has and the success story that the international program has become. Thank you. I mean, and thank you. I, I say this to you know every time I'm I'm lucky enough to be on on your show or any of these shows. Um, that are done internationally, like the 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 fact that you guys are doing this and and doing it yourselves to kind of create and engage and and grow the fan base. That's really like you're doing my job for me. So thank you for for doing such a great job of of um, identifying and engaging the fans. You know when you're on Sky or or through this um, platform, it's it's this is what we want, right? We at some point when you become a fan of something, it goes from kind of needing to be spoon fed to actually finding the voices that that you want to listen to about the sport or whatever it is that you're interested in. And I think you you guys have created that with with this show. So I'm, I love having a coffee with coach and I'll come and have a coffee with coach anytime, I, especially in that background. I'd rather be having a coffee with you in person, to be honest with you. Well, you know, you're always welcome here. Uh, by the way, what I appreciate that was very nice of you to say that. And I just need to know, do I invoice you or do i invoice mr <laughs> you can both of us both of us i think every Hodgson, always a pleasure to have you with us man take care hugs to your family and keep doing Thanks. a great job good to see you man